Well, good morning. If uh, you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning. The question about the person and work of Jesus has been discussed for literally thousands of years. Nearly every religion, every civil group, every person on the face of the planet has some idea of who they think that Jesus was or was not, is or is not. Mormons identify him as the Yahweh of the Old Testament, but distinct and separate from God the Father. Atheists are at odds on whether he ever existed at all. Some say that he did, but only as a moral teacher, philosopher, or revolutionary. Other atheists conclude that there's just a lack of historical evidence to prove that he ever existed. Our own Nick Wistance, in regards to the Hindu people that he's worked with, told me that getting a Hindu to believe in Jesus as God is not the difficult part. They simply add him to the list of thousands of other gods that they have. He said, for a Hindu to reject all those other gods and claim Jesus alone is the difficult part. I haven't worked with many Hindus, but I've worked with Muslims from all around the world. Muslims agree that Jesus was sent by Allah, not as Savior, and certainly not as the Son of God, but as a prophet only. Some Muslims would even agree that Jesus was indeed crucified and resurrected through the power of a law, but still just as a prophet. Others say that Jesus was going to be crucified, but at the last second, Allah switched him out with Judas Iscariot taking Jesus to heaven. Without a doubt, no matter who you talk to, they're going to have some thoughts on the person and work of Jesus. But I'm not concerned with what they say or who they say he was. The question today is, who do you say that he is? How you answer that question will have eternal implications. What you do with the person and work of Jesus will ultimately determine your eternal destiny, heaven or hell. And so what's in a fairly familiar passage for most of us, I want to spend our time this morning looking at the time that Jesus poses this question to his disciples. Let's look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark places this narrative in the center of his gospel. Understanding the true identity of who Jesus is is a pivotal moment for both the author and the reader. Everything up to this point, and certainly everything after this point in Mark's gospel, hinges on this truth. According to Mark's account, Jesus and his disciples were visiting some of the villages near Caesarea Philippi. It's a city formerly known as the city of Dan, And it was, for all intents and purposes, the northernmost point in Israel. It was about 25 miles north of Bethsaida. But the Greeks didn't have a word for Dan. And so they started referring to it as the city of Pan or Peneus. That's close enough, right? And it wasn't a coincidence that Pan just happened to be the name of the Greek god of the wild shepherds and flocks. After Philip, the son of Herod the Great, inherits the city, he wants to show some respect to Caesar. But he's got a problem. There was already a city down south named after Caesar called Caesarea. So Philip, being the creative genius that he was, renames the city of Dan to the city of Caesarea Philippi. Caesar gets some credit. Philip gets some credit. It's a win-win. Caesarea Philippi was therefore largely inhabited by Gentiles or Greeks. It was in Israel to be sure, but you wouldn't know it just by looking at it. Pagan temples dominated the landscape. And so it is here that Jesus poses the question to his disciples. Strolling through the streets, passing pagan temple after pagan temple, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? In other words, Jesus says, fellas, what's the word on the street about me? Now the disciples are pretty good Jews up to this point. Their contact with Gentiles has been fairly limited as the law required. So when Jesus asks what people are saying about him, their minds go to other Jews. They can't speak for the Greeks, but they've heard a fair amount of discourse on what the Jewish people were saying about Jesus. Jesus' display of extraordinary power astonished his countrymen, and it provoked the question as to the source of his authority and wisdom. But his true dignity remained unrecognized. And so the disciples begin sharing the speculations that they've heard from others. Some say you're John the Baptist, or at least some reincarnated form of him. John the Baptist had been beheaded shortly before this by Herod, 
And some people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead to finish the job. It's not a terrible offense to be likened to John the Baptist. He was a pretty well-respected guy when he was alive. Others, though, thought Jesus might be Elijah. Still not a bad comparison. Elijah was basically a superhero to the Jewish people. This identification of Jesus was based on the Jewish expectation that the prophet Elijah would return prior to the Messiah's coming. It's taken from Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And still, it had been 400 years since God spoke to his people through a prophet. And here is Jesus doing some pretty incredible things. And so there were some who just thought Jesus was another run-of-the-mill prophet sent by God to resume the line of suspended Old Testament prophets. Either way, and as misplaced as they may be, all of these theories about who Jesus was show that overall, people knew that Jesus was special or somehow supernatural. They couldn't explain away the authority in which he taught or the miracles which he performed. And though it would seem that every kind of opinion was floating around, none of them truly hit the nail on the head. And so having heard the latest gossip about what people are saying about him, Jesus changes the question in verse 29, and he fires it directly at the disciples. He says, who do you say that I am? You've been with me since this whole thing started. You've eaten with me, walked with me, talked with me. You've witnessed everything that I've done. Who do you say that I am? Now, Jesus poses this question in such a way that the contrast between the general population from the question before and those who know him intimately and have followed him closely is clearly presented. Jesus knows what the disciples are going to say. And he's going to use this moment to teach them what it means to truly follow him and catch this, what it's going to require. So having the question directed at them personally, Peter, the designated spokesman for the others, answers Jesus. He says, you are the Christ or the Messiah. Peter's confession shows that he and the other disciples know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the anointed one, the appointed agent of God. The fact that Jesus is here means that the fulfillment of God's promise and the realization of Israel's hope has finally come. And we see from Matthew's gospel in chapter 16 that Peter gets the answer correct. But how much Peter and the other disciples actually understand about this truth that they've just affirmed remains to be seen. Peter's affirmation is a marvelous expression of faith. And at the same time, a reflection of a gross misunderstanding. Just as there were many theories on who Jesus was, there were also many theories on who the Messiah would be and what his role would consist of. Most contemporary Israelites anticipated that the Messiah would be a royal figure 
one who would function as sort of a warrior king, coming to overthrow their Roman oppressors and return Israel back to their prominence and God-given glory. They expected a king, but what they got was a baby born in a cave who spent most of his adult life homeless. Nearly everyone missed it. This certainly wasn't the stately figure they had anticipated. But Peter and the other disciples have seen things that no one else had. They've heard him teach in ways no one else taught. In spite of Jesus' humility, they know that he is the Messiah. And then in verse 30, we have an interesting note that Mark gives us. Mark says that Jesus tells them to keep his messianic secret tells them, don't tell anybody who I am. If word got out that Jesus was the Messiah, they may very well try to make him king. But that would be okay with the disciples. It's what they've been waiting for. Like everyone else, they were wrapped up in this notion that Jesus would at some point take a throne, an earthly throne, and deliver them from Rome. Years of oral tradition led them to think of the Messiah like everyone else. They were correct in their affirmation, but they didn't have a clue as to the inner workings of Jesus' Messiahship. They've missed the scope of the messianic mission Jesus came to fulfill. So starting in verse 31, Jesus begins to explain what it means for him to be the Messiah, and what it requires to be identified with him. Jesus takes everything the disciples thought they knew about the Messiah and turns it upside down. Jesus begins to unfold the scriptures for them, prophesying that he must suffer a violent and humiliating death. He tells them that Jesus didn't come to this earth to be king. He came to die. Jesus explains that his sufferings and death and resurrection are necessitated by the mysterious and the divine work of judgment and salvation in the last days. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to be made a king in the earthly sense. He came to die. But Jesus never spoke of his death without also speaking of his resurrection. Sin may win the battle, but Jesus will win the war. Christ's resurrection is the victory and the vindication of his messianic mission. Christ's identity cannot and will not be made clear until he has suffered, died, and rose again. Only then will the disciples and the rest of the world know his true identity. And until that time comes, Jesus tells them, keep it a secret. And thanks to another little note that Mark's, Mark uh, gives us, we see that Jesus spoke of these things plainly. He didn't use a veil parable this time. He wanted to make sure that his disciples knew exactly who he was and what he was about. But this was radically different than what they had always imagined. So radical, in fact, that the mere thought of his suffering seemed inconceivable. 
And so, in classic Peter fashion, he takes a bold stance on the matter and rebukes Jesus. Peter does incredible things when he's acting through faith, but there are times like we're about to see when he sticks his foot in his mouth and he falls flat on his face. And Mark is very careful to make sure that we understand the kind of language that Peter is using with Jesus. Mark says that Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him for the very thought that he would suffer. The word for rebuke here that Mark uses is the same word that he uses when describing the force in which Jesus silences the demons in the previous chapter. It's a strong word. And Peter, you've, you've just affirmed that Jesus is the Messiah, and now you're getting lippy with him. Bro, I don't think that's going to go very well. And it doesn't. It does not go well. Not for the other disciples, and definitely not for Peter. It's not that Peter's rebuke was unfounded. What Jesus had just said to them in the simplest way possible was so radically different that the disciples were totally unprepared to hear it. A rejected and suffering Messiah was incompatible with Jewish teaching and hopes. And so it's understandable that Peter, on behalf of the entire group, would respond in this way. Understandable, but presumptuous. And Jesus isn't going to let him get away with that kind of attitude. The shared conviction from the other disciples that Jesus must be mistaken about his purpose required Jesus to give the most stern rebuke in the entirety of Scripture in front of all of them. Peter receives the brunt of it, but it's intended for all of the other disciples as well, and it's intended for us too. Four verses after Peter has what is considered one of the pure examples of faith and affirmation, Jesus likens him to Satan. I don't think you get to brag about getting the previous question right if just four verses later Jesus compares you to the devil himself. It doesn't work like that. That's like scoring a basket for the other team and then bragging about how nice a shot it was. You, sure, you score one for the other team, and nobody cares what it looked like. But in the middle of Jesus' rebuke of Peter, that's where I want us to focus our attention this morning. Peter loved Jesus. Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter knew that in Christ, all things Uh, all of God's promises would be fulfilled. He knew these things, but Peter made a grave mistake. Unintentional, but a mistake all the same. With the best of intentions, Peter rebuked Jesus at the very thought of his suffering. His intentions were pure, but please don't miss this. Zeal is and sincerity are never excuses for error. Passion doesn't automatically lead to proper theology. 
the Pharisees were a very zealous people, but they missed the central truth of the entire Bible. Peter's zeal for his own predispositions would, about the Messiah, would get in the way of the truth of the gospel. To suggest that Jesus forego the passion and head straight to the throne misses the point entirely. With the best of intentions, Peter has just encouraged Jesus to disobey the will of God. Opposition to the will of God on any level is either from Satan himself or a direct product of an unregenerate human nature, sometimes both. And Jesus simply won't stand for that. And so he immediately puts Peter in his place. Just because Peter and the other disciples don't like the thought of a suffering Messiah, it didn't change the truth of what was without a doubt going to happen. Just because they didn't believe it, didn't make it untrue. Peter and the other disciples would have preferred a Jesus who took an earthly throne and slaughtered Israel's enemies. They would have preferred that their friend and teacher didn't have to suffer a horrific death. And in this moment, on behalf of the other disciples, Peter lets his personal preference get in the way of biblical Christology. And this is an extremely dangerous place to be. Ignoring biblical truth for the sake of your own thoughts and feelings is detrimental. We may not be tempted to do this in the exact same way that Peter did, but we're tempted to do it all the same. Anytime the truth of the Bible hits us where it hurts, we want to say that's not fair, or I don't feel like that can be true. I've heard people say, well, Jesus loves everybody, and I just feel like he'd be okay with same-sex marriage if he was here today. Or Jesus won't give me more than I can handle. Or I just feel like I need to follow my heart on this matter. When a loved one dies, we say, God gained another angel today because it makes us feel better. We ignore the truth of the Bible when it contradicts our preferences. And the reason this is so dangerous is because those are lies. If we come to church to worship the Jesus that we've concocted based on our preferences, we're no longer worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. We're worshiping an idol that we've created who we happen to call Jesus. We take our own feelings, experiences, and intellect and change what the Bible says and inadvertently all with the best of intentions, change the God we claim to worship. Buying into something contrary to Scripture is deadly, and Jesus tells Peter that it's satanic. The lie that Peter believed and the lies that we're tempted to buy into are directly opposed to the will of God. We may not pull Jesus aside and rebuke him the way Peter did, but we rebuke him in our hearts. We take the truths of Scripture that we don't like and we substitute them for something that better suits our liking. And most of the time, like I said, it's with the best of attentions and we don't even realize that we're doing it. This is exactly what Peter did. 
This is exactly why Jesus likens him to Satan. But Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter and then let him wallow in that shame. Instead, Jesus begins to show him and everyone else around that what a proper understanding of the Messiah is and should be. Jesus shows them what a proper Christology looked like and what it requires. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Peter had honestly thought that he was following Christ rightly. But he was unaware that he was building upon falsehoods. He was inadvertently building his house on sand, trusting his own predispositions instead of the truth of the word of God. But the call of the gospel, the call to follow Christ is a call to suffer with Christ. We cannot claim Christ and remain passive uh, observers of his passion. The way we grow in faith and understanding is through the participation in his sufferings. Jesus says the only way to fully understand the humiliation of Jesus and the necessity thereof is by walking the same path Jesus walked on his way to the cross. But Jesus doesn't make this demand to just his disciples. Mark is very careful to make sure that we know that these statements are made to the crowd. Anyone who would follow Jesus, anyone who would claim him as Savior and Lord, must be prepared to shift the center of gravity in their own lives from a concern of self to a reckless abandon to the will of God. Following Christ means a denial of self. We have to disown any claim that, which is urged by the self. Any doctrine or theology that we contrive on our own must now be submitted to the word of God for correction. It's about saying yes to God and no to self. It's about being willing to accept the truth of the word even when we don't necessarily like it. It's no longer my will, but his. And God's will was that Christ would suffer a wrath-absorbing death on our behalf, and that those who would follow after him would suffer alongside of him. The call to take up the cross is a call to join in a death march. Committing to Christ permits no turning back. And if necessary, a willing submission to the cross in pursuit of God's will. Suffering with the Messiah is the condition of glorification with him. 
If you don't take up the cross, you can't wear the crown. If we are to gain eternal life, we must be willing to lose our own, both physically and spiritually. We must be willing to put our fleshly nature to death in exchange for spiritual life. You want to follow your own inclinations? That's fine, but you're going to pay the price. You want to follow God's will and willingly lay down those preferences for a life of, um, and life of ease for a life of suffering? You're going to gain a crown of eternal glory and life. The currency of the kingdom is completely backwards than what you and I typically think. To save your life, you must lose it. And Jesus says that your soul is more valuable than all of the worldly treasures that one may gain. What is it to gain for a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? The great uh, theologian Jim Carrey once said, I wish everyone would become rich and famous so that they could see that those things are not the answer. Jim Carrey isn't even a Christian, and he understands the words of Christ in this passage better than most. A true follower of Christ must prize him above all else. Above money, fame, and watered-down theology. Above pleasures of the flesh in exchange for everlasting joy. One of my fears in sharing the gospel with someone is that they might misunderstand this. That if they say yes to Jesus, they'll assume that they're in for a life of ease. But they couldn't be further from the truth. Becoming a follower of Christ doesn't exclude suffering. The gospel is an invitation into suffering. Jesus never promised that the Christian life would be easy. And from this passage today, it's quite clear that Jesus promises the opposite. And Jesus guarantees that the Christian will suffer. But in the midst of that suffering, Jesus also guarantees that he will be enough to sustain you. This passage started off with Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ. But Peter, as well as the other disciples, had little clue of what that would actually mean. They would have preferred a Messiah that freed them from their oppressors. Instead, they got a Messiah who would suffer and die and rise again on their behalf in order to give them so much more. But a Messiah who suffers demands that we be willing to suffer too. We must be willing to lay down our own thoughts and aspirations of who we would like Jesus to be and worship him for who the Bible says that he is. So who do you say that he is? For many Christians, their Jesus is too safe. 
He loves them, and he doesn't want anything for them except health and wealth and happiness. But this isn't the Jesus of the Bible. For many Christians, Jesus doesn't require a whole lot. But this isn't the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is not safe. He's not weak. And the cost of following him is not easy. There is only one version of biblical Christianity. It's not easy. It's not glamorous. It demands suffering and denial of self. But Jesus never said it was going to be easy. He said it'd be worth it. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us of the times that we've let our own preferences and our own feelings get in the way of the truth of your word? And Father, would you allow your word to penetrate our hearts that even when we don't necessarily like it, even when it hits us where it hurts, that we willingly submit to it And Father, when we come to worship on Sunday mornings, may we be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible as you have revealed to us, not the Jesus that we've made up in our own minds. Because, Father, that is dangerous. It's borderline heresy. And, Father, as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, would you remind us uh, not only of Uh, Jesus' sufferings on the cross and his death and his resurrection. But would you remind us that this life that you have called us to is a life that uh, is full of suffering, is an invitation into suffering alongside you. And may we gladly pick up our cross on a daily basis. May we gladly march beside you if it means seeing your will come to fruition. Father, we love you. It's in your name we pray.